Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, singer, pianist, and recording producer from Cleveland, Ohio, Frank McComb. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Mr. Frank McComb with us. Sir, thank you. Hey, all good, man. Thanks for having me. Yes. And ladies and gentlemen, this is another one of those interviews where I get to be a fanboy because I am a fanboy <laughs> of this guy's stuff. <laughs> so I know we have a oh, time man. thing, so I try to get through a lot of this somewhat quicker than normal. And sir, let's just start with your high school career and how you even got your first record gig. Actually, before that, please introduce yourself to the people. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> Frank McComb, independent recording artist, uh, signed to two different major labels that uh, that uh, really didn't get it, basically. So I went independent in 04, and uh, I've been independent ever since. You know, literally booking my concerts, recording my own records, mixing them, mastering them, and selling them directly to the public, booking my own concerts, literally doing everything for myself. Literally independent. Proud of it until I can find the right label. <laughs> That's me. That's very hard nowadays. Yeah, kind of is. <laughs> but like I was saying before, you literally were living the dream, at least. From high school, you got a major deal. Well, not directly from high school. Um, it was a little window in between. Um, when I was a, a kid, I was playing in the bars in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, started playing at 12. By the time I was 15, I was in the bars with the older guys. By the time I was 17, I started my first trio. I had, my, I had my first trio at 17. Um, 19, I was, uh, I graduated from high school, Glenville High School, Cleveland, Ohio. And um, I got involved with the Root Boys, this group called Root Boys. They, we actually met because uh, we all did talent shows. And my band was always the band that would play the music for the talent shows. And they would, they would perform. So when they got to deal with Atlantic Records through Gerald Levert, they asked me to be their musical director once the original music director ended up going out with the Winans. They asked me to take the seat. So that was my first touring gig. Um, I was out with them uh, all of 91. We, we rehearsed from 89 to 90. 91, we went on the road, Rude Boys, Levert, and the OJs. So uh, after that tour, that's when I moved to Philadelphia to work with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff and uh, Jazzy Jeff, Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. And that's when I ended up nailing my first deal. The gentleman assigned uh, Jill Scott to Hidden Beach Records actually signed me to, to Motown Records just years before. He had a, a label called Mojazz, and it was the jazz division of Motown Records. So I, I was there for about three years, and um, they never got a record out on me. I recorded a record that ended up being bootlegged in 2003. But... Um, uh, what else did I do on that label? I did uh, two songs for a Christmas album that they put out, a Mojazz Christmas with Norman Brown and, and some other people. Um, and I put two songs on Media Man soundtrack for Robert Townsend. That was it. So that's, that's when my uh, recording career actually began. But my first album, I, mean, I, I left 
Motown, and I toured with Brandon Marcellus for a number of years and uh, recorded my first album for Columbia Records, thanks to Brandon Marcellus, through their jazz department, um, Love Stories. It was recorded in 98, sat on the shelf all of 99. And uh, come 2000, we fought the label to get them to put it out, and they finally put it out, but they wouldn't support it. So once again, issues of politics. I ended up leaving Motown because Polygram bought the label out for millions of dollars, and the little guys like me were totally overlooked. So I left, went on the road with Branford, signed to Columbia after doing a two-hour showcase for their R&B department, and he passed on me to sign someone else. And uh, Branford assured me he would get me signed to Columbia, but we had to go through the jazz department. You know, sometimes you can't look at how you get in. Just get in where you fit in and make it work from there and just work what you get. And with Columbia Records, they at least put the album out. Though they didn't support it, they at least put the album out. And having a record out, it's like having a credit card. It does open up some doors. If you don't have a record out, nobody's going to want to book you for shows because who they're not going to believe anybody knows you to come to buy tickets and come to a show, you know. So at least they got the record out. It's like a platinum credit card, you know. Okay. So um, yeah, keep going. I, I just I just decided to go indie after dealing with that. I mean, from there I went to from a black label to a white label to an independent label, and that independent label definitely didn't know what they were doing. So <laughs> I ended up leaving, and I went independent for myself at that point because I didn't want to make a career of chasing record labels. I just didn't want to make a career chasing record labels. I wanted to make a career making music. So that's when I started doing it for myself. I developed my own little imprint called Booby School Music. B-O-O-B-E-E-S-C-O-O-T, Booby School Music. Named after my daughter. It was the first nickname my wife gave my daughter because she was just starting to crawl. <laughs> she was just learning to crawl. And our first child, well, both of my kids, they were like toys to us. So everything they did was just mind-blowing. You know, this little thing that we created, you know. My daughter, she started scooting to this, to this like, we always had a bunch of toys for her. We would just dump them out in the middle of the living room floor. We had no furniture purposely. So she can have full reign. <laughs> so, and every time I bought a new toy, we put her on the floor and she'd find that toy. She was just that smart. And she was just starting to crawl and she would find that toy. When, when she we, we first started playing this game, she started crawling for the first time trying to get to that toy. And my wife looked at her and said, oh, look at little Booby Scoot. Oh, my God, look at Booby Scoot. And that's where I got the name from. Okay. Yeah, so I started doing it myself. Okay. Well... Just so everyone knows, he's being a very, very modest with his introduction. His Rude Boys won a Billboard Award, was like number one on the Billboard charts. I'm not going to talk about that, right? <laughs> well, no, we no, we actually can because that really wasn't my accolade. That was that was for the Rude Boys. I was just a musical director. I wasn't a member, but it still felt good to to have played or worked hand in hand, side by side with these guys and to see them become successful like they did. I can say that I started my career with some successful cats versus, you know, saying, oh, I work with some people that just weren't that talented and <laughs> it sucked, you know what I mean? Yeah, I get, so, but, so, but yeah, it's, it's still a great accomplishment, but that's their accomplishment. I'm happy for them. Uh, with Jazzy Jeff and the French Prince, what mm -hmm. songs will you actually back up on? Because when I look at my brother's LPs, I didn't see any credits. You don't see, you're not going to see me anywhere because I didn't do any, any records with him. I just toured with him. Okay. Yeah. We did one song though. I did one song with him called Get Hyped and it was the B-side to the song Someone to Be With. Uh, Teddy Riley did it with him. But it was a song called Get Hyped. And uh, that's the only recording that I did with them. But I, I toured with them and did a lot of session work, like a lot of creative stuff with Jeff. 
Jeff and I did a lot of experimenting at his house. And uh, he's probably used some of that stuff in some of his earlier mixtapes, who knows. But I did a lot of hand-in-hand stuff with Jeff, and I toured with those guys. We were on the road a lot. Okay. Uh, Gamble and Huff, though. So you meet them, you get more work. How was that experience? Because those guys have hits. That experience was wonderful because uh, it taught me, it showed me that... um, they first off, they ran their own business. I watched Mr. Gamble sign everybody's check every Saturday, and mine was one of them. I sat there and watched him sign all the checks, and that right there spoke volumes to me. Um, when I became independent, I looked back over my gambling huff years, and I thought about it. I was like, they were already independent <laughs> before independent became really popular. They were independent, and to to watch them. First off, growing up listening to the music and then to work with them side by side. I'm in, the, I'm in the main studio room with Mr. Huff sitting across from him recording with him. Man, that's one of the greatest feelings. And, and then to see them run their business, you know, that spoke volumes. And I'm, I'm glad I had that experience with them because when I went independent, it made me think back on how they still ran their own thing, though they got distribution. They got distribution from CBS, what we know as Sony today, with the help of Clive Davis. So they were independent. They ran their own thing. And, and, and it inspired me once I went independent. So having that experience with them was wonderful. You know, to go back and just think on that, that in itself was great for me. But um, being in that room where they recorded quite a few hits, playing on the same piano that Mr. Huff used on some of those hits, you know, looking at the same trident board, the mixing board, that they cut a lot of those hits on. You know, and then going over to Sigma Sound, which doesn't exist anymore. Well, Philly International doesn't exist anymore either. So um, to to be a part of that history, that's, I mean, history still exists, but the, the landmarks themselves are gone. So to be a part of that, to have been a part of that, even in the latter years of that existence, it, it, I'm, I'm proud to say that I was a part of it. It's, it's a great feeling, and it makes me proud to say that I can go down on the record and say that I was a part of the Gamble Enough history before they shut down. Okay. And Sigma Sound, you know, no, out of Philadelphia. I, I'm jealous yeah. of you there. There's <laughs> <laughs> not much I can say on your, your whole career. It's funny you said I'm jealous of you there. Oh, that's funny, man. That's a good one. <laughs> and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this. So you were on tour with Tina Marie and Mr. Philip Bailey when you decided to leave them to go perform, I mean, go with Bradford, Marcellus. Actually, there's this history with, there's, there's, there's history with both of them that I can kind of share. Um, Please do. The history with Tina. I was in Philadelphia when I actually met her over the phone. Her, well, may he rest in peace, Doug Grisby, basically great bass player, nicest guy in the world. He was a musical director and I was doing a recording session with Doug. And I think it was for Regina Bell. This might have been the day I met Chris Walker because he was her MD at the time. And um, we were in the studio working on something and he had to call Tina about an upcoming show that they were going to play. And I'm sitting there, he's talking to Tina and I'm like, wow, he's really talking to Tina Marie. So uh, he hands me the phone after telling Tina, hey, you really need to know this guy. And I'm talking to Tina Marie on the phone and I'm you know, explaining to her 
you know, what I'm all about and the whole nine. And she says, if you, and now mind you, this is before, I'm, this is even before I signed to Motown, which was, you know, hell, she had already been there and done that with Motown. Um, she says, if you ever make your way to LA, and mind you, I'm in Philly, mind you, I'm in Philadelphia and still had not signed to Motown yet. She said, if you ever make your way to LA and you need a job, you let me know. I got you. And it just so happened that I took her number and the whole nine, but it just so happened that not long after that, I signed a Motown record. I moved to L.A. November 9th, 1992. And a few years go by, and a deal with Motown goes sour. I remember it because I remember Tina's conversation because I was going hungry. And uh, I just started a family. And, and I'm saying to myself, I got I to gotta get work. So mm-hmm. I did a few gigs around town, going back to what I knew, back in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm playing club gigs. I'm playing bars. So I said, I'm going to have to work. So after leaving Motown, I go back to what I knew, start playing the, playing bars, clubs, whatever, just to sustain. And I remember Tina Marie said, call her. So I pulled up Tina's number and I called her. And I said, hey, a few years back, I met you over the phone through Doug Grisby. My name is Frank McComb. Blah, 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 blah. She remembered the conversation like it was just yesterday. And she said, hey, I'm glad you called because I got a show at the Reseda Country Club New Year's Eve. Can you do it? I said, I damn sure can do it. <laughs> and that's how I started playing for Tina. She was a woman of her word. And that's how I started working with Tina. Um, we're talking night. That was, uh, no, let me see, November 9th, 1992. That was uh, New Year's 93 going into 94. Okay. Yeah, that's when it was. I believe that's what it was. Somewhere around that time. I may have my dates a little off, but it was somewhere around that time. You know, I just turned 53. Some things I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of evicting out of my mental because I don't have the capacity for it. <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah, that was that was somewhere around that time. And um and uh before I knew it. I got a call to go out with Philip Bailey. And uh, I'm, I'm on a road with Philip. And here comes Branford Marcellus. You know, this is all after Motown. Man. Here comes Branford Marcellus, Buckshot LaFonk. Hey, Branford's looking for a vocalist for his group, Buckshot LaFonk. And I'm like, what is a Buckshot LaFonk? I'm bitter because now, you know, the deal went sour, but Motown, the whole nine, whatever. And um, I go out with him, and I'm going out with Philip at the same time on the road. So it's mighty funny, quick story, in addition to the story. Mm-hmm. I'm out with Philip Bailey, and we're doing a USO tour in Japan. And I called my wife and I said, hey, baby, you all right? I'm feeling you. She said, yeah, I'm okay. I think you're going to be a dad. I'm like, what? She said, yeah, you're going to be a dad. I was like, oh, cool. So we you know, fast forward nine months later, we're giving birth to my daughter, Mari. Little booby scoop. Little Booby School is born. Two days after she's born, I got to go on the road with Buckshot LaFont. But I called Bradford and told him, look, man, I can't do this run with you yet. I got to see the birth of my baby. So I'm going to need you to get a sub. You know? So he got a sub for me and said, do not miss the birth of your baby. I missed the birth of my firstborn, his son, Reese, by 30 minutes because he was on a plane from Germany trying to get to New York. He couldn't get there fast enough. You know, he said, you'll never get that again. Do not miss the birth of your child. So he was really cool about giving me a sub so I could have that experience. Well, some time later goes by, and I'm back on the road with Philip, and we're in Japan again. This time it's Blue Note tour, right? We're in either Tokyo, Fukuoka, mm-hmm. Osaka, one of them places, right? 
because you know all of those places had different blue notes it was the whole blue note tour where we hit every blue note in all of the cities all the different cities in uh in, in japan so i called my wife and i'm like hey i'm feeling you you all right <laughs> she said yeah you're gonna be a dad again i'm like what <laughs> so here we go nine months later gave birth to my son frank nice two days after frank was born I was back on the road with Philip. It happened twice the exact same way. So I called Philip jokingly and said, hey, man, I ain't never going back on the road with you again. Because every time I go on the road with you, my wife gets pregnant. <laughs> so that was our running joke, you know. But, yeah, I was going back and forth between Philip and Bradford. And eventually, uh, Buckshot LaFont took more of my attention because we ended up doing, like, I was on the first album, the, the debut album. Uh, but it was only one song. It was just featured on it. It's an old Elton John cut called Mona Lisa's at Mad Hatter's. And we went on tour, but when we went on tour, we actually wrote all the music to the album Music Evolution, which was the sophomore album. Yes. And the final album. I love Buckshot that album. It's a great record, man. But see, that's when Buckshot LaFont really became a band. Buckshot LaFont was just an idea for Bradford until we all got on the road and started touring. That's when we jailed musically, jailed as brothers, jailed as musicians. And we were writing a lot of the stuff from Music Evolution while we were on the road. So I remember the song Another Day, which was the hit that got me signed to Columbia. Branford, like we're traveling and we're, we just took this long bus ride somewhere in Europe. I think we were in Finland somewhere. And it had to be about four or five o'clock in the morning. Something crazy like that. Branford wakes me up out of my bunk on a tour bus. I'm like, what, man? It's early. He said, come on, man. I got this song. We got to find a piano, man. I got this song. I got to show it to you. I'm like, at four or five in the morning? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so come on, man. Come on. He pulls me out of the bunk. And it's a big festival. All these different stages, different tents. And finally, we get to what I believe was the Crusaders tent. And it was a Steinway Grand Piano up there for Joe Santa. <laughs> so he opens up the piano. And he starts playing these chord changes and starts singing, another day. Na, 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 na. And I'm like, okay, hold up. It's too early in the morning for this. What is turn and none and none, man? What, what? He said, I don't know, but you're going to help me write it when we get back. <laughs> so we get back to New York. And we finished another day. And that, turn, that song turned out to be such a huge hit that I didn't realize it was a hit. I didn't know it because I was still in my mind a musician because being an artist at the time, to me, just kind of came and went because of the issue with Motown right before. But in my heart, I was still a recording artist. But in my mind at the time, I was just another member of the band just trying to find my way. So I wasn't thinking, you know, follow the business on this tune. But they never told me it was a single. Branford surprised me by uh, yeah, that was saving it. the song. Yeah, we ended up, we, were, we, we went back on the road after we recorded it. We went back on the road and we performed it. So it was in the middle of the set, like song number three or four most nights. So we perfected all of that music, you know. And we got to Amsterdam one time. We started a new tour, uh, got to Amsterdam, and it was the last song on the, the set list. I'm like, okay, that's weird. You put another day at the end. So we went into another day, and the crowd went nuts. And then I'm like, what the world? And I look at Bradford, and Bradford looks at me holding his sax on the stage and said, congratulations, you got a hit song. And that's how I found out another day was a hit. And that song ended up leading to my deal at Columbia Jazz. Yeah, because I had already done the wow. two-hour showcase prior to recording it, you know, recording it another day. So I guess, uh, I guess so that's what was needed to keep us on the So you been working up at four in the morning help get you that gig? Bro, <laughs> you never know, bro. You got to always be ready, man. <laughs> you never know. <laughs>
Boy, I tell you, that was probably the 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 best wake up. <laughs> and then he just acted like, yeah, I knew this was gonna be a hit. Well, no, he kind of. Well, actually, they they put out a couple tunes first, and then he went with that one when they were ready to give up on Buckshot the Funk. Columbia Records was ready to give up That's on Buckshot what because I and ask we ended up, about. yeah, yeah, we we ended up having. Well, Branford ended up rather it wasn't me. Branford ended up having to shave down the band because it was probably thirteen of us and shaved it down to maybe seven. I think it was twelve, like eleven or twelve of us, and they had to shave it down to like seven or eight of us. And me being a vocalist in the band, I was a needed person. And one thing I've learned, if you want to keep a job, always be needed. Always be needed. That's how Joseph was in the Bible. Always be needed. There was a famine in the land. They found Joseph. He fixed the problem. <laughs> he came second in command of a land that he was once a prisoner in. So you got to always be needed. Be important or uh, you'll be overlooked. You know, so I was able to keep my gig in Buckshot of Funk because I was a vocalist that was actually needed in the band. Okay. Yeah. I was the only vocalist. Yes. Now, I didn't get to ask him these type this question because, once again, I was short for time and there was other stuff I want to ask, but mm -hmm. yes, what happened it. to it? Buck Funk. What exactly Buckshot, cost it? Buckshot of Funk just dissolved because I think Columbia Records stopped putting money into it. Okay. You know? That's, that's what I believe happened, just long story short. Without without money, the tour can't survive. Nothing can survive without money. I mean, that goes far beyond putting out records and touring. Nothing can survive without money. Understood. Someone yeah. told me, just so you know, way off the record, <laughs> mm -hmm. that he's like, hip-hop and jazz been tried, and it didn't catch on. So when a lot of these newer artists say we need more of that type of fusion... Mm -hmm. His whole attitude was, it ain't going to work. Do you That's agree? what Bradford said? Huh? That's what Bradford said? No, no, that's not what Bradford said. Someone else said that off the record after an interview. And they mentioned that about Buckshot LaFont? Yeah, they mentioned that because I said that's one of the groups that was doing it because Music Revolution, that song in general was, I thought it was a popper. I don't know if it did yeah. well on the charts. Let, I, take it from one who was a member of the band. I don't know who that other person was, but... Take it from one who was a member of the band and watched this happen. Buckshot LaFont opened up the doors for a lot of groups that you hear today. Yeah, Buckshot LaFont opened up the doors for Incognito to be even more popular than what they were. The brand new heavies, Soul Live, the style of music actually lent itself even down to what Robert Glasper is doing. The, the mindset that Bradford had musically for Buckshot LaFont The best way I can put it is his mentality could have gone even further in regards to pushing this style of music or this whole thing, this whole music wave, this music change. Buckshot had a lot to do with it because people were afraid to take the chance to do that. And if we all got back together again, let me tell you something, there's a lot of imitators, but there you can never, never, never outdo the originator, ever. The funny thing this was... After Music mm -hmm. Revolution, my brother bought, the, uh, what's it called? Things Fall Apart, The Roots. Mm -hmm. And literally, I thought they were copying you guys. No, but you know what I'll say about The Roots and what I love about The Roots. The Roots um, and Questlove is my dude, man. Questlove, James Poison, all those, man, those are my cats. Um, they, I won't say were biters. I would say they knew good stuff when they heard it. 
You know, and, and what I love about the Roots is that they kind of took, they tried to take it to the next level. They tried to take it to the next level. That's what I truly believe about the Roots. They tried to take what Buckshot did to the next level. You know, you, 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 you listen to what people are doing and you add yourself to it. And that's how you find yourself. Okay. You know, I really believe, I really believe that they tried to take what Buckshot did to the next level because Buckshot LaFunk was very, very influential. Very influential. But when it comes down to the business of things, you know, people are looking at dollars and cents. And especially nowadays, you have to come correct or already have your stuff ready before a label even look at you. Nobody wants to invest in in grooming a new act. If they do, then they see value in that artist that that artist doesn't see in himself or themselves because it could be female. Okay, and they'll think- ride, they'll build that artist up, just fatten a cow just to kill it, basically. So you think they're more lenient now than back then? No, I think they're lazier now than back then. <laughs> Let's get the L's right. They're lazier now than back then. Nobody wants to hunt for talent. Nobody wants to groom talent. They don't do that anymore. You got to pretty much have your stuff together as an artist when you walk in the door. In my case... I've already set the ground the groundwork for Frank McComb. I've done all the le- all the labor, all the legwork. I've done everything. Built my own little fan base. I've done it. I've done it myself. And I could be a gold mine for a label, but it's got to be the label that's going to do me right. May I ask what yeah. you're looking for in a label? Oh, easy. Their money because they see me as a product, I'm going to see them as a bank. This is just that simple. And what comes with the label is is the power that comes with it, the all of the uh, things that come with it to push an artist. You got the booking agencies, you got uh, a proper management team, you know, and the things of that nature. Everything that an artist needs to push him, you know, to give him the exposure. I was signed to two major labels, and neither label got me any exposure. They didn't service my music to radio. They didn't send me to. They didn't make videos and service it to BET, MTV, and etc. They did none of that. So when people say Frank McComb is underrated, they're absolutely wrong. Frank McComb is not underrated. Frank McComb is underexposed. So well, that's where Buckshot is. has music videos. I swear I saw them. That's that's Buckshot LaFunk. That's not Frank McComb. Buckshot LaFunk had we had some Cal Funk and we had another day. But that's under Buckshot LaFunk. That's not that's I mean that's Frank McComb in the video, but it's the group Buckshot LaFunk. That didn't push me as an artist. That's a, that's a difference. Yeah, I just did my first my first music video as a recording artist in 30 years. I just did my first one last year for the song We Were Made For Us. And it's all me. Nobody else is on that track with me. All tracks cut by me, all vocals the whole nine. But my friend, Sri Master Gano Grills, and my friend, G.B. Barclay, they partnered up and blessed me with a video for that song. That song got me an award with Soul Cafe Radio, which is very reputable as Artist of the Year, Male Vocalist of the Year for that song. So had Motown or Columbia released my music and pushed it properly, I'd be a platinum selling artist. I know I would. I don't consider a hit song one that, um, really one that's played on the air. Hold on, you can create hit songs, you can make hit songs, you can pay for hit songs. But to me, a hit song is one of popularity, whether it's had, had money behind it or not. And what tells me that a song is a hit is when I'm in concert and people are asking to hear it. People I've never met 
people I've never laid eyes on are asking to hear songs. And in my case, it's songs, plural, with an S, that people are asking to hear. They're naming out titles. It's just everybody's blurting out titles. If I say, what do you want to hear? They start blurting out all these titles. Every now and then, they'll throw a Donny Hathaway tune in or Stevie Wonder tune. But for the most part, 90% of those titles that are yelled out are songs from my catalog that I've built over the years. I've set the groundwork already. I've done all the legwork. Okay, now it's just time for somebody to come Motown. along and take it to the next level. You were mm -hmm. uh, you were there in like roughly '92, correct? Yeah. Do you think like Early boys 90s. to men and those acts like help suppress it? Well, when I hit the scene, music was changing, and boys to men fit the, the boys to men. They matched the time. They matched it. What happened with me at Motown is I ended up signing to Mo Jazz, not actually Motown. Okay. So the reason I ended up, uh, McKeever ended up putting me on Mo Jazz is because I wasn't, quote unquote, an urban, as they say, an urban adult contemporary artist. Boyz II Men was urban adult contemporary. Johnny Gill, it's like my brother. Urban, urban adult contemporary. Urban AC, as they say. Me, I was more on a musical tip because I'm an instrumentalist as well. So to keep me versatile, McKeever wanted me on the Mojazz label. So anything I played, if I decided to write a tune and it was instrumental, then I could still put it out on Mojazz. If I decided to write a tune that was vocal and instrumental, you know, me playing for myself, uh, you know, we put on Mojazz because Mojazz was more, more broad when it came to the style of music. Whereas being on Motown, the urban AC side of Motown, it was strictly music of entertainment. Music with a bunch of dancing and firecrackers and the whole nine. You know, it wasn't as musical. It was entertainment type music, you know, not musician type music. So if that makes sense, I'm trying to break it down as as, as easy as I can for the listener to understand. So, so I went to Mojazz. They put me on Mojazz. But the issue there was that my A&R guy, whose name I won't mention because I don't believe in exploiting people. I do believe in sharing my testimony. The guy that was assigned to me, that was assigned to me to be my A&R guy, the original guy I had, he was on point. He was on point. But then when Polygram came out and bought out the label, whole new set of people came in after I was already signed. So I got, I had another A&R dude appointed to me and he was a knucklehead. <laughs> he didn't, when I was recording the album that I did do for Motown, he not once came to the studio to hear anything. So once we finished the whole project, or should I say Mojazz, once we finished the whole project, he came down and listened to the whole project from the first song to the last without saying a word. So when, once the last note was played, he looks at me and says, Where's the begging and the pleading? I was looking for Gerald LaVert, R. Kelly. Aren't you from Cleveland? <laughs> we put him out the studio and told him never come back again. Oh. Yeah, we put him out. He literally kicked him out, said, go back to your cage. Put him out. Yeah. Okay. It was then that I knew it was time to go. It was time to go. If you don't have favor with the company, mainly the president, if you don't have favor with the president of a company, you don't need to be at that company. Because you're just another number. You're already a product the moment you sign to one. But you're just another number. <laughs> if you don't have favor with the, the, the president of the label himself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like I said, I can't relate to that stuff. So all these stories <laughs> I heard, I was never with a major well, label, sir. 
Yeah, no, it's cool, but there's somebody out there that's going to get this. That's the purpose of you putting this platform together. It's for them. And somebody out there will get it. They'll get it. They'll understand it. So is there any way? And thank you for that, by the way. No, it's all <laughs> good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there any way you could talk Mr. Marcellus into doing another album? Nope. Oh. <laughs> Been there, done that, man. And I'm not the only one. <laughs> Oh, I'm not the only one. Oh, yeah, we've, you know, so many people. I've had so many fans say, when is Buckshot LaFont getting back together? And I always lead them right to Brantford. I say, that's a Brantford Marcellus call. I have no idea. Okay, so I dropped the ball on that one. Everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you, no, 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 you didn't drop the ball. I should have asked him, but I didn't. You know, again, some... <laughs> again, again, the platform is for the people. So you're basically getting questions answered for the people. So you're on point. <laughs> okay, you on point, bro. One more thing on that, and I drop Rockford. Right. It's <laughs> Did cool. Eric it's all right. ask to do another album also? Talking about Eric Revis? Yes. I'm sure he has. I mean, he's in Branford's quartet all the time. He sees him more than I do. So he probably has. <laughs> okay. I don't know if he was one of those, like, nah, I'm going to keep this quartet thing going. And yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I just know that it takes money. And, and if he can't find the funding, then I would, I just, I'd, would have to agree with him not to try to do it if he can't find the funding for it because it takes money and it takes time you know we'd all have to write songs or get in the studio and write songs or write songs to, you know from where we all are and send them in you know to each other because nowadays we can record through through, to, through technology and the internet enables us to send music around you know to we just email stuff which is really cool so but yeah that's a Branford call you know Okay. And, uh, we've been wanting him to do it. We've all been wanting him to do it, but you know, at this point, with everybody having careers, it's gonna be a little tough. But it's a matter of having the timing, you know, getting the timing together, and uh, doing a lot of homework and getting money. It's gonna take money. Okay. Tell me about yeah. a tribute to the masters, because that was one that completely threw me off when I heard it first. Ah. A tribute to the Masters. I originally did that album. Uh, I really originally released that album December first, two thousand six. That was the original date. Um, but uh, was it last year? I believe it was that I I did a remastered edition. I I added two new songs to it, and uh, I called it Straight from the Vault. Um, I'm sorry, not Straight from the Vault. I'm so sorry. A tribute to the Masters remastered edition, and. Uh, this record was was my first, well, my only instrumental record. It's the only instrumental I've put out, and uh, I was afraid to do it at first, only because I I didn't sing on it at all, you know. And I was afraid that the people would be like, "Oh, he's not singing on this record. I'm not going to support it. I'm not going to buy it." Yada yada yada. But I was totally shocked because um, a lot of people said they loved that album. They were like, "Man, we love to hear you sing, but it, this record is killing." You know, so I was I was really shocked that people caught on to that record. And so I figured what made you if do I, that if though, I did songs out of the blue, I'm sorry? what made you hmm? do that out of the blue, though? Just taking a chance as an indie artist, putting out my own music. Can't nobody tell me what I can and can't do. And I just I did it for the fun of it. And I figured, you know, if I was to work with Russell Ferrante or Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, George Duke, Ramsey Lewis, Patrice Rush and Joe Sample, if I was to work with these guys, I'd probably present this particular song to them. And that's how I came up with the original tunes for that album. Yeah, okay. that's how that came about. 
Yeah. And I just took the chance. I just figured, you know, with me putting out my own music and I'm this talented, this gifted, I'm just going to, I'm going to maximize my gifts. You know, I was uh, also remember uh, watching Bishop T.D. Jakes on TBN some years ago, like right before doing that record. And he mentioned in the sermon, maximize your gifts. Don't shortchange yourself because of the world. Maximize your gifts. You know, and I decided to do that instrumental record because I'm a gifted pianist with literally three piano lessons. I was blessed with three piano lessons from my Aunt Evelina one day after church. And I just took those lessons and ran with her. I ran with them. She worked with me for one hour, but three Sundays in a row. So it was three hours piano training. And uh, I've been on the move ever since. Okay. Now I'm on stuff. Yeah. And eventually I'll do another instrumental record. I, I've been thinking about it. I just haven't, uh, just haven't sat down to do it. Okay. I'm looking forward towards that. Now, here's a question you might hate me for. What is your big, what do people misunderstand about the music world the most coming from you? Cause you're in a, once again, another unique situation. What do they run about me again? Just so I can kind of understand the question. What do people misunderstand about the music world? Well, that, that question can go a lot of ways. Um, to be honest with you, I'd have to, you'd have to ask the people that because I can't think for the people. Um, as far as people, we have to narrow down. We have to narrow down people. Are we talking about the buying public? Are we talking about industry people? You know, we talking about record label people. So that that can go pretty far. So you kind of have to narrow what people or who people is. Somebody in university who says, I want to be the next Frank. <laughs> okay. Well, one thing they'll have to understand is that if you want to be the next Frank McComb, you have to learn every job there is to know that that enables a recording artist to be just that, a recording artist. There are a lot of jobs. You got the promotional side, you got the studios, uh, recording the music, you gotta know how to record it, you gotta know how to use your, you have to train your ears for mixing, know how to master it, to balance all those songs. You know, once you've recorded them all, you gotta balance them all so they sound evenly across, like you don't have one song louder than another on a project, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like you mix each song, and then you put all the songs together as a project and balance it, and you mix each song according to the next song you know so you have to know how to do all of that you have to know how to speak up for your own shows speak up for your own your own work you know if you're booking your own shows you just, I mean literally if you want to be the next Frank McComb you're going to have to invest a lot of time in learning all these jobs because that's what I did it, it's going to take for you to do some homework on yourself because you have to know your value you have to know your value and you can't be in denial if, you know, if, if you you just can't be a denial, you can't be telling promoters that you want fifteen thousand dollars for uh, for a concert when you're only worth two. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You can't. Okay, you can't but be how telling. would they know how much they're worth? Well, first off, record the music. It's steps. You got to write the songs, record the music, put the music out, and then be in tune with your followers. Your followers will let you know. People will let you know because people are people are just that open, that honest, that brutal, that cruel, 
that supportive, you know, you got to listen to the voice of the people that's following you or supporting you, and they'll let you know how good your music is, and you go from there. Start doing shows, see who show up at your shows. Stevie Wonder just came to my show Saturday night and hung out with me the whole night. You know, well, he was there and have, once again. He, he was there. <laughs> well, well, I will share this with you. The dudes were horrible. <laughs> really? <laughs> I paid a lot of dues to get to this point where artists and uh, people of, of value, should I say, are coming to my shows. I paid a lot of dues. Okay. Tell me a one lot of the of worst dues. stories so, of that. One of the worst stories of that? Yes. You really want to know? I definitely do. <laughs> Going hungry for many nights to make sure my family eat. And I'm talking a young family. We're talking little kids. Yeah, to go hungry to make sure they eat behind this record business. You know, um, people, should I say managers, I've been through about nine or ten of them. That's why I'm not interested in them. I had to learn how to be a manager for myself. Managers and people of the such that come in and mess up your life and go on about their business and leave you to pick up the pieces and try to put your life back together while they're going on to the next artist. That kind of stuff. You know, I've had my share of that. I paid dudes calling a record company asking, how come you're not pushing my record? And then his secretary says to me, he doesn't even know who you are. Oh, okay. Well, if he doesn't know who I am, tell him to draw my papers. Tell the attorney to draw my papers and let me leave. <laughs> and you got a great record sitting on the shelf. Okay. Yeah. So you got to learn all the jobs for yourself and do them on yourself. So that's... What, what an artist, an, an upcoming artist really need to know if they want to be the next Frank McCall. You got to do some homework. You got to do a lot of work, <laughs> you know, but you have to be anointed for it too. You got to be prepared. You got to know not everybody can do. And I'm not, I'm not saying it in arrogance. I said it in confidence. God is my witness. You have to be able to do all these jobs. You have to be anointed to be able to do these jobs or you're going to wipe yourself out. Try to learn all the jobs that you possibly can. And where you need help, bring somebody in, you know, but but try to learn the job still. So if you and that person fall out, you can roll up your sleeves, let them go on about their business. You can roll up your sleeves and do that job yourself along with all the other jobs to keep your ship from sinking. Everybody needs help. But until you get that help, help yourself first and do the best you can to learn all the jobs you can to get yourself out there because we have the power of the Internet now. We have the power of the internet and technology. They're sending these spaceships up in the air to go to the moon and all these other places to put satellites up so we can do what we do. So take advantage of it. You know, they always say UFOs going to come on Earth and whatnot. We don't want to send any UFOs up. <laughs> That's what the space shuttle is. If you think about it, we don't want to send the spaceships out. <laughs> <laughs> but they sent them out there to set up the satellites so we could have the technology to do what we do. You know, it's not just for us. It's for all the corporations, companies, or whoever, whatever. But it enables us as recording artists to not have to depend on a label to get your name and your sound out, get your music out. You know, now we have what it takes to get our sound and our music out. Put a little money up to boost on social media so people can see or learn, learn of who you are and they can see you performing live or hear it on, on Apple Music or any place else, you know? We have that at our hands now, at our fingertips. So do the best you can with what you got. Do it for yourself first. And i tell you another thing. You'll know if you have endurance or not to be able to do this. If you start doing it for yourself, you're either going to quit or keep pushing. 
So mm -hmm. you yourself will know if you cut out for it <laughs> in okay, the so beginning. Then once you get it out there and people start listening, they'll tell you if they like it or not. Okay, so you're saying somebody that's in undergrad or uni that says they want to do this full time needs to Man, do it. They could, they could be senior citizens. It don't matter the age. They okay. could be senior citizens. They could be 15 years old. They could be high school, middle school. Don't matter the age because music has no age, man. And it is, it's universal. And I mean, and I'll say this, I say this in humility, not to knock nobody, but anytime you can come out of prison and start a label, it don't matter where you come from, don't matter the age. If you have the knowledge and the know-how and, and the tenacity and, and the endurance to get out there and do it, get out there and do it. The age don't mean nothing. Okay. It doesn't matter. There's a little young bassist I know named Aaron out of Slovakia. He used to come to my shows before he ever had a name for himself. Aaron at the time was probably nine or eight, maybe 10 at max. And he would come to my gig and kill on bass with me and my band in Bratislava, Slovakia. Maybe in a few spots in Slovakia and would just sit in on my set. Now you look at Aaron online, he got to be about 15, 16, I'm guessing, if that. And the boy is killing. He's gotten even better. So age has nothing to do with it. Just okay. try to surround yourself with people that, that, that know some things. Don't nobody want to hear nothing from nobody that ain't been through nothing. So try to surround yourself with people that are, that are uh, meat and not tofu. This <laughs> is the best way I can put it. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I know somebody exactly what you're saying. Somebody that's going to fill you up with some wisdom and some knowledge to help you get to the next level. You know, surround yourself with people that are better than you. People that have already been there, done that. You know, okay. that's that's the best advice I can give anybody. Where do you think music will be in ten years? Jazz and hmm. R&B, pop. That's a good question. I will. What what I totally believe is that a lot of the stuff that we hear today is is gonna come and go. Um, I plan to still be here if I'm still alive because I put out timeless music and I say that in humility. I plan to be here. I don't know about everybody else. But according to the stuff that I hear out there that's trending and the stuff that's supposed to be so great and platinum selling, um, I would just have to say, I would I would just say that I hear a lot of stuff that has the lifespan of a cheetah. Yeah, okay. the lifespan of a cheetah. <laughs> that's a now, good now, you know how cheetahs, they can run real fast, but they can't go for so long. You're going to get a real fast run out of them, but he can only go so long. Well, that fast run is equivalent to the sales and, and, and all the accolades and crackolades. But then once you got that, it's over. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's short lived. You got all of the great stuff that came with it, but it's short lived. And then you got to find out what you're doing with the rest of your life. If you, if you, if you yourself didn't write that music that sold so well for that label, you're going to be broke. You just have Grammys and whatnot, but you ain't got no money. Okay. I'd rather be like an elephant who live a long time. Elephant, uh, a turtle, I take my time. I get a turtle, I love Cecil Turtle on Bugs Bunny. I love Cecil Turtle. He take his time, he still get to the finish line. <laughs> and he still got energy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, so I'd rather be like an animal that's gonna live a long time. I take my time and live and enjoy the process and still reap the rewards for a long time. Longevity is a great thing, man. Longevity is a great thing. Practicality, practicality is a great thing. I can still go to the movies, go to Disneyland or whatever and not be bombarded. So I'm not a rich prisoner. That's prison. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so. 
I haven't had anyone on that big yet, even though I think they're big. They all tell me they're not big. <laughs> if you but get what I mean. That, that could be a good thing, too, because you still want to keep the humility. You know, practice the art of humility. There's nothing wrong with practicing the, heart, the art of humility, man. It's like somebody could be so large, but if they, you know, if they're willing to talk to you just as regular people, that's a good thing, man. That's a real good thing. You know, anybody that practices the art of humility is not going to say how large they are. I don't think they would. Okay. I've had I've had quite a few conversations with Stevie, but he's never, um, to me at least, bragged about his popularity. He knows who he is. <laughs> Johnny Gill. Johnny's like my brother. He knows who he is, but he'll never want to say how large he is. He knows his value, but that's one of the most arrogant things one can do is say how great or how large they are. You're not God. No, I don't mean it like that. I mean like, okay, this is Johnny for a second. Okay, so... Okay. There's a great amount of people who know who he is, who knows mm-hmm. what he looks like. Right. So they just come up and talk to him. And then you had some people who probably played in Johnny's band. So I'm just like, wow, I know who they are. Right. Mm-hmm. But then they're just like, yeah, that was a fun gig. Johnny's great. The end. Do you get what I mean or no? So. So help me understand, like they, they don't, I'm, I'm lost on that one, one more time. Because I'm coming from an approach of, an, of a recording artist himself, digging himself up or herself up. So so help me understand it. I'm, I'm kind of lost. In other words, you are literally at least one time I want to say Johnny was an A-list celebrity. Mm-hmm. And he's still known really well. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. According, if I was to get him on the show or something like that. Would he be like, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, that was a fun gig. I got into New Edition. It was fun. Oh, I get it now. Um, actually, I don't think... Um, I, I don't think Johnny would come off like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, think, jo- I don't think Johnny would come off like that. I, I really don't. Um, no, I, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I don't think Johnny would come off like that. Okay, okay. That's fair. So... If you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what is the one advice you would give him? I would tell him to be on the lookout for the game of politics. Because politics has been my politics has been my issue since before even leaving Cleveland, Ohio. You know, I went to uh the Cleveland School of the Arts and uh, it was it's a school for the gifted, you know, it's a magnet school. And even the director of the whole music department overlooked me. I've been overlooked my whole career, my whole life, pretty much. He he overlooked me, showed favoritism to other musicians, and really didn't invest in me as a singer or musician. Yeah, I was overlooked. So this uh, this type of school actually groomed us on how to go out and be performers. So we were trained to go to corporate gigs during school hours. And it was our responsibility to still get ourselves to the gig get ourselves back to the school or home, depending on what time that corporate gig was. And we had to be in our homeroom seat that next day on time and still keep up our academics. So um, that was the gospel choir. I was a vocal major, but a piano minor, right? So anything with the gospel choir that, that you know, any calls we got with the gospel choir, I was always involved in, or the vocal ensemble I was involved in. But then there were calls that would come in for the Cleveland School of the Arts Jazz Trio. But there was one piano player that he would always invest his time in. 
and he would only send that one piano player with a bass player and drummer to all of the corporate gigs that required a trio or an instrumental band. Well, he got called, the school was called by two different corporations at one time. And that trio can't be in two places at once, right? <laughs> so I asked the director, hey, send me with two more musicians and let me go play. Nah, I'll let you know. <laughs> That's what he would tell me for two weeks. Oh. And then finally, I guess he got tired of me asking. He said the other one canceled out of the blue. He canceled. So I started playing in the bars with all the older guys. And I'm still going to this school, right? And the musicians that would go out with the other piano player that, that attended the school, they were like, hey, man, how come you don't ask Dr. Blah, 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 blah to go out and play? I said, well, because what y'all getting a grade for, I'm getting paid for it. So I'm getting my experience outside of the school. So y'all go ahead and earn that grade, and I'm gonna go get this money. <laughs> so, and that's how I, that's how I started playing in bars, you know. Or that's what encouraged me to listen to the guy that actually started me in the bars, you know. So I eventually started taking those guys from the school, and I took them to the bars with me. Yep. And then playing for the school became boring to them. So, are you a conservatory person, or you're not a music conservatory person? No, I'm not. I got all of my education from the streets clique. And then touring with people like Branford Marcellus and Chaka Khan and Frankie Bevel. Yeah, I got all of my music straight out the streets. Everything I've learned was from records, streets, and then being under those that I toured with. That's my education. Okay. And to not have gone to anybody's college, God has blessed me to speak at Stanford, do a college, do a concert at Berkeley College of Music. You know, I've been to some schools and I have not attended a college. So, so I, w I would have to say I'm a walking miracle definitely a child of God and I try to use my gifts for the right reasons I just curious touring with Chaka Khan how was that fun <laughs> she gave me my own spot every night and she would go and take a little break go smoke a cigarette or something or drink have a little drink or something change clothes whatever she just took that time for herself and uh, she gave me a spot every night and I was singing the song for all we know which is Fender Rhodes and lead vocal, and that was it. And crowd loved me. I got just as great, my, my reviews in the newspapers, and I say newspapers at the time because we didn't have the internet back in 1999. So all of, I mean, my reviews for my performance were just as strong as her reviews for the concert. Okay. Like I said, there's not much I could even add or ask after that. <laughs> but when she hits those high notes live, is it is it literally natural or does that mic help her? No, well the mic is gonna expose whatever comes out, so Okay. Yeah. If you know what I, I think mean. it was probably it was probably one of the best bands that she was with at the time that I believe. And uh she was killing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you can remove all barriers and constraints, you had an unlimited budget. What project would you make and who would be on it? Hmm. Um, be honest with you? Yes, 100% honest. Um, 100% honest. It would be people you least expect. It would be my, it would be my quartet probably out of Amsterdam. It wouldn't be no big name celebrities. Not at all. It wouldn't be not one big name celebrity. It would be my quartet out of Amsterdam. For real, that's the truth. I would go for who I know will put their heart and soul into wanting to play with me, who will want to work with me. 
That's the truth. I'm, I'm not caught up into the names. I'm not caught up into. I respect people, but I'm not a respecter of persons, if that makes sense. I respect you as a person, but I can give less than a damn about what you do for a living. I've been there, done that. You know, once you've been in a game so long, you've been around so many people, you see what this game is really about. And I respect people as recording artists. I expect them as I respect them as musicians and whatnot. But truth be told, to answer that question, wouldn't be none of them. It would be probably a set of musicians that I know I can get a great record done with or get some great touring done with without even having to flinch on, are they gonna mess up this part or mess up that part, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that's what it will be. Just, just honest God's truth, it will be, it will be them. It will be a set of musicians that I know for a fact can get the job done because my focus, to be honest with you, my focus is the buying public. My focus is on the people who make me who I am as an artist. And I wanna do my best to take the money that will be given to me to put into, I would invest in Frank McComb. All things that Frank McComb need to give that audience the best show I possibly could. That's what I would do. And it wouldn't consist of having another recording artist. Okay. Deal. They got theirs already. And most of them aren't willing to share it. So <laughs> that's just being truthful. Understood. So I just have a few more things. Let you go right away. I swear. Mm -hmm. It's all good. How does it really feel when a record label shelves your album? Well, naturally, that's not going to be a good feeling because that's your work that you've done, you know, and though they pay the money to have it done, they actually own that copyright or that project because whoever spends the money owns the project. So it's, you feel like you have no control. Once they've spent the money to make the record and you're excited about this record coming out and they sit on the shelf until the time they feel is good for it to be released on the business tip, you know, that leaves you in limbo. So you will have had to work out a situation with them where they keep you on retainer until it comes out. See, these are the things that's trial and error. These are the things that you have to learn from experience. See, you get knowledge from books, but you get experience and you get wisdom from the experience. You get wisdom from living it. So if given that opportunity a second time, that, our, that, that label would have to keep me paid until they release that record. That's a clause that would go into the agreement, not a contract as me and Prince would talk about. Not a contract, but an agreement. A contract, you've been conned, you can't get out, but an agreement is something that you're actually putting thought into, putting into that paperwork, and both of you guys are agreeing to do it, you know? Yeah, know what you're signing. And uh, as long as they own, as long as they put up the money, they own the project. And they finally put that record out when they feel like it. It's not a good feeling to have your music shelved and you're waiting to have this record released so you can do dates and take care of your family. Yeah, that's, that's not a good feeling. So um, one thing I don't like is to be bound. I like my freedom. And any label that I would go to would have to give me that freedom. They would have to give me my freedom and I'm, I'm definitely gonna wanna own my own masters. Oh, they so will. I would, yeah, so, okay. it would be best, so, so it would be best to do the music and take it to a label for them to just release it or distribute it. But anything's possible. I mean, if as long as a deal, as long as both parties win, then it's not it's not selling out. It's compromise. Compromise is good as long as both parties are willing to do the give and take thing. That's a great thing, you know, because everybody you got to give up something to get something, and that's only right. That's a good fair compromise. 
Selling out is not cool. Because not only do you sell yourself out, you sell out everybody that's under you. Mm, that's a deeper thing we're not going to go into. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... You had an album. It was like a joint album a few years ago that my brother bought. It had you, Destiny's Child, Jagged Edge, and all these other mainstream artists on there at the time. Do you think that helped you get more exposure, or do you think it hurt you? What album is this? It's like your brother bought. Your brother bought an album with me, Destiny's Child, it was Jagged like for Edge. For a soundtrack, it had put, to be. Hmm? It, it, it was a soundtrack. I talked to you about that after the show. Okay, no problem. No, 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 bro. You brought it up in the interview. I'd like to know what that is. No, you keep it fair. Oh, hey, that's, that's fair. That's uh, fair. Hold if you, if on one up, second as I go grab it. Yeah, go grab it now. Because if you don't bring it up, don't, 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 no, 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 don't backpedal. Yeah, what's this project? Because it, it might, it might have been a. Uh, Still well, no, smoking, tell me what it is. First. A black musician sampler. It was under Columbia. Okay, is Kobe Bryant on it? Uh, I don't see Kobe. I remember I there, see was, there was a... Mara I Carey. I see Mark Gray. I see Jennifer Lopez. I see Jagged Edge. I see Brothers. I see Brothers, Jagged Edge, Mariah Carey, Jennifer Lopez. And I'm on it. Okay, you don't know about that. Okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> it, it has to be. It has to be very old then. But it was for Columbia. Yeah, it had to be very old. So they they might have put out different samples way back then. Okay, no, understood. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, obviously, I mean to answer your question, obviously it didn't do shit for me. How about that? <laughs> fair, fair, fair. So yeah, so uh, you can we can retract that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair. Well, sir, can you tell them about your radio show, your Patreon, your Bandcamp, your social media, all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. If if everyone goes to Frank McComb Music, it's M C C O M B, Frank McComb Music dot com, you'll find my Bandcamp, um, my my all of my social media, my radio show, my apparel. You'll find everything there. Bandcamp. I tell people all the time. When you get our music on Spotify and Apple Music and all the places, all the different digital outlets, you get your music right away. But we as recording artists have to wait three months to see the proceeds. So I got hip to this thing called Bandcamp. And there are, there are other artists that are using it, which I'm happy to see. But Bandcamp, we put all our music on Bandcamp. We upload it to their system. And people can download the music. And... Uh, People can stream their music, but they only have a certain number of times to stream it before they can buy it, which protects us. So when people download and stream on Bandcamp, you get your music right away and we see the proceeds in two days, not three months. So Bandcamp, I would say, is my personal digital music outlet. You know, my personal Spotify, my personal Apple Music. That's the best way I can put it. That's why I encourage people to go to my band camp and get music there. Support the artists and not the system. That's my slogan. Support the artists and not the system. Um, my radio show. Sometimes you have to become the very thing you need. And I became radio. So it's uh, Frank McCombs Living Room. Every Saturday and Sunday at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And it's one hour of all things Frank McComb. It's all my own music I get to play or the music that I'm featured on on other people's albums. 
instrumental stuff, vocal stuff, um, unreleased live stuff, live show clips, live performance clips. Yeah, just, yeah, I get to do whatever I want, all things Frank McComb for an hour every Saturday and Sunday. So it's the same broadcast, just aired twice. And uh, that's, you go to Cluster Music Radio for that, but it's all on frankmccombmusic.com. You can check that out. You really want to get to know me better. Uh, to book Frank McComb is also there. You just go to fmconcerts at gmail.com because I'm self-booked. And even if a concert comes in through somebody else, I still negotiate. So it's fmconcerts at gmail.com to book me directly. Uh, what else? Facebook, Instagram, all my social media. It's all there too. At frankmccombmusic.com. Apparel, my FM hats, sweatshirts, everything. 3104 customs at Gmail, but that's a, as well. That's all of that. It's under that one umbrella. Frankmccombmusic.com. And I appreciate the platform, man. I appreciate you uh, giving me the platform to share this information. No, I'm honored that you came on. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>